This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Book podcast with David Nickturn on the Be Here Now Network. My name is Michael Cammers, your host and monologist, and I sincerely hope that this podcast finds you as well as can be in these challenging times in the human realm. And we have a timely contemplation today on the three marks of existence. Namely, impermanence, non-self or interdependence, and suffering, not necessarily in that order. These are three foundations of the Buddhist view, which we will be getting into In a new kind of podcast on CSM, this podcast is a Dharma talk that David is giving, sort of laying out the nature of analytical vipassana or analytical contemplative meditation where we use our thinking mind to get a deeper understanding of the Dharma in a way that can transform our lives and liberate us from suffering. I think this is well-timed or coordinated on the tales of our previous podcast entitled Who Am I? about non-existence or interdependence, which is one of the three marks. So, after you listen to this podcast, we encourage you to do some contemplative meditation yourself on these three topics. We encourage you to use your own discernment to see if it aligns with your experience and perception of reality. And please, do not take my word for it. And spoiler alert, there's a fourth mark that isn't talked about as much, and that's nirvana, that beyond suffering is peace. So we can balance the view out in that way. This is an excerpt from our current cohort of our mindfulness meditation teacher training program. So you're also getting a little taste of what it's like to be in level one of the program where we explore mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, awareness meditation, and contemplative meditation. Also for context, this picks up right after I rung the group out of a... (laughs) a 40-minute meditation session. Um, And I ended it with one of my favorite poems by Trungpa Rinpoche. In the garden of gentle sanity, may you be bombarded by coconuts of wakefulness. David starts from there and kind of weaves into the themes. 
So I think that's about enough to set up this conversation. And here we are with David introducing contemplative meditation. You know, in Thailand on the beach, they actually use trained monkeys to climb up the trees to bring the coconuts down before they fall on the tourist's head. I've seen it done. Guy comes around with a trained monkey. The monkey goes up the tree, plucks the ripe coconuts, throws them down to the ground, and they, you know, they barrel them off. So probably, literally, it's better not to be a hit in the head with a wakeful or even a sleepy coconut or any kind of coconut. There's a, a word called interdependence. Have you heard that word, interdependence? Anybody heard that word? Of course, we have our declaration of independence. Make a big deal about independence. Um, and this leads to a kind of profound. analysis of the nature of individuality and also in what way, what are the boundaries, what are the borders of individuality, in what ways do we connect and interact. And I think if you look carefully at the world right now, There are many displays of interdependence being demonstrated. Wouldn't you say? Everything just seems connected. And if there's a tug here, there's a tear there. So in my way of looking at things, Understanding interdependence is probably crucial for how things evolve going forward here for the human society. <clears throat> Those are the two strong threads, wouldn't you say? So puffing up your ego and declaring your independence, and the other one is recognizing your connection to everything. So you could say that the term egolessness, which is, you know, something that's we're going to look at this morning, actually, this session. <clears throat> is also inverted, has the same meaning as interdependence. It's the recognition of the interconnectedness. So even if there is some form of self, which we're going to look at pretty carefully this morning in our contemplative uh, practice, that it's hard to find a self that is actually independent of other phenomena. And we're going to go looking this morning. So... In this session, 
if you remember, we've already covered mindfulness meditation practice. And then I think we had an interesting ride uh, with the awareness practices. The raisin burst. The burst of raisin flavor exploding through our consciousness. The acuteness of the visual world. The multi-dimensional sound palette that we float through like a cloud with ears. And if you tune into the awareness practice, there can be a lightening of one's sense of dense individuality. You start recognizing that sensory phenomena are in as uh, the Beatles would say, within you and without you. Inside and outside. Where is a thunder clap occur? Where is it? So it occurs in your conceptual mind because you've already thought it's outside of me. It shakes your physical body. So it's really directly part of your physical reality. It gets processed into your brain as a sound file, digital sound file stored for later. And it does seem to have some external locus to it. Now, I'd like to start our morning's exploration by saying this is far beyond some kind of speculative, theoretical, intellectual, conceptual framework of just trying to get some kind of conceptual grid in place so that we can feel we don't really have to experience the raw bite, the edge of the real world. We're not trying to add intellectual padding in this particular kind of approach. So it requires a little bit of fortitude and daring, I think would be the right word, to undertake this kind of quest. What we're doing is a kind of a quest. It's not just idle speculation, because your whole life is at stake, actually. Your very existence is at stake when you take a closer look at the nature of your own existence, you're really challenging. And it's very non-theistic in that regard. We don't assume anything about any reinforcements coming from the cosmic level down to the regional level to uh, rescue us. So we do call this the path of the warrior. One definition of the warrior is daring to be genuine in every moment of your life. Pretty good. And you're also willing to be alone. Um, you can be interdependent. You can also experience 
your aloneness at the same time. It's kind of a very powerful form of poetry there. You recognize your solitary journey at the same time as you recognize the interconnectedness with all that has ever been, all that will ever be, all that is. Big, it's a big uh, mandala, big arrangement. And what we might say is that the whole thing leans towards Buddhahood. The interesting way of talking about it. Reality leans towards realization of one's true nature and the true nature of the situation. It's never going to leave you alone. Reality will never leave you alone. <laughs> Bombardment of wakeful coconuts. You know, there's always something poking through the veil of our attempt to go back to sleep, to zone out, to just create a comfortable, safe space. So this session, we're going to a third type of practice. These all fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And this is called contemplative meditation. Analytic meditation. In which we use our thinking mind. You don't actually label thinking in this one. You invite the thinker onto the playing field that's smart, clever, brilliant, deductive, inductive, let's figure it out kind of mind. But you don't just give that individual aspect free reign to just ransack and ramble through your memories, which is what it's normally doing. <laughs> and aspirations and dreams and hopes and fears, you target a particular topic. You give a target, um, which is some object of contemplation. And you can contemplate anything. You know, I, for example, lately have been contemplating world politics quite a lot trying to understand the mind of the oligarch. You know, what is going on there? A tendency to consolidate power in that way and then lord over everybody else, whether they like it or not. I've been contemplating that, thinking, well, it must come somewhere from part of our structure as human beings. There must be a seed of that potentiality of being an autocrat. And if you study Buddhism, you recognize that those seeds are not just concentrated only in one place, but maybe everybody has a little autocrat in them. Everybody's, you know, I don't know if you all ever heard of Charlie Chaplin or not, but there's, he, he did a movie about a great dictator and mocking that, that personality, 
but it's not so funny when somebody like that seizes power. It's not really, I mean, it's a, you, it's a stretch to see the irony and humor that everybody's got that in them. Otherwise, how could somebody like that manifest? Impossible. Uh, everybody would just go, that's a crazy person. We just get them a good doctor or something like that. But maybe we all have a little autocrat in us, you know, a little dictator that wants to tell everybody else what to do and how to, how to look at things and wants to control the world, wants to control communication, control other people's perceptions, keep any kind of healthy chaos from entering the situation. So one uh, phrase that I've still contemplating from my teacher was chaos is such good news. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> We're all going, don't say that. And if we look at our lives, we do anything to avoid chaos. You know, we'd color code our socks in the drawer. We would get, um, you know, binders for our manuals so that each section is discreet and completely identifiable as what it is. <clears throat> we would like our dinner to be just so, the silverware to be just so. Um, and, and our physical world to be just so. So anything that interferes like a runny nose, a bloody nose, a toothache, <clears throat> a teenager. <laughs> Do you want by the way, shortcut, if you want some chaos in your life, just import a teenager. And uh, you will have the uh, all, all the chaos you can handle mostly. So it's an irony that we're trying to always make things into neat little piles and stacks, and and they keep kind of erupting into all kinds of alternative situations. And that little thread in our mind, if if that becomes the dominant thread. And there's enough anxiety about disorder and chaos entering the system. We, we call entropy, right? Right? No, it's called entropy, isn't it? Do you know what entropy means? No. When that takes off on its own? It's the tendency within a system to move towards chaos. To move away from order. And I believe it's also the tendency within a system to move towards order. It's the kind of momentum in a, in a system. So when we introduce this contemplative meditation, please don't look at it as a way of like, now I got this straightened out. Now I understand impermanence. I understand egolessness. I understand suffering. I've got the grid all set up. Just allow the contemplation to gurgle up, to uh, introduce some 
unsettling of your preconceptions. That's a good contemplation. It actually unsettles you. You go, hmm, I got to take this further. I've been going like, oh, everything's impermanent. But I didn't know they meant me. I thought they were talking about everything else. You mean me? Well, sure, theoretically. Uh, you know, I have life insurance. I have medical insurance. I have my will all made out. But that's another thing from like, <gasps> you know, it's happening now. It's happening right now. And Buddha says, and it's not because Buddha had this big opinion about it. It's just sort of true. At any moment, any of us is expendable. And while we're waiting for that big, like, little parts of us are falling off. Our teeth are falling out. Our vision's getting worse. We need glasses. We're losing our hearing. We, we need a knee replacement, a hip replacement, a hernia operation. It's just our reality is crumbling as we uh, attempt to stabilize it. And that's not bad news. You think, get this guy out of the cocktail party. I always say, don't invite a Buddhist to a cocktail party because they're going to say, you're all going to die. Get him out of there. <laughs> and I told Duncan Trussell, I said, you cannot tell your two-year-old, scream at your two-year-old, you're going to die. That's not good timing. That's not skillful means. So when we see our beautiful, I spent part of the morning with my beautiful granddaughter, Izzy, who's four years old, Ethan's daughter. And it's like um, drinking ginger ale for me. It like bubbles up. It's so much fun. And she just jumps all over the place. And she's got Lego sets. Um, she's, they were building Paris this morning, a Lego set. Those of you who are parents, you know what I'm talking about. There's dedicated Lego sets. But Paris is impermanent. One day the Eiffel Tower will not be there. <clears throat> the person who designed it probably already is not there. So reality has this funny texture to it that to not be, not to be a killjoy or to be a party pooper, that the Buddha you know, points the fig finger of discerning wisdom, we call it prajna, right at that fact of life, impermanence. And if you contemplate it, it will change the way you think about things. It's a disruptor. These contemplations are disruptive. But one of the things they disrupt is illusions, delusions. So we all have a very basic question of do we want to disrupt our delusions or do we not want our practice to stabilize our illusions or create a base for us, you know, kind of, okay, now I got the Buddhist illusion working full, full scale here. It's very disruptive and also creative. So when we contemplate the way we're going to do this morning, we're continuing to explore our world as we did with the mindful attention, 
as we did with exploring our sense fields in the awareness exercise. Now exploring our conceptual structure of how we fashion the world, how we formulate it. With no aim in mind. Like a scientist, it was so great when I talked to Amishi Jha. I've always wanted to talk to scientists about Buddhism, you know. And a lot of people are quote, quoting neuroscience and stuff, but this was actually a neuroscientist. <laughs> you know, it's one thing for us to go, well, neuroscience says blah, 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 blah. But a neuroscientist with a PhD is going, uh, it's exactly precisely this. We studied it in the laboratory, and the average person's mind is wandering 50% of the time. Stunning. That's not her opinion. So, in contemplative practice, we are using a wedding stone of the practice to sharpen the blade of what we call prajna, discernment, discerning mind. And prajna is a kind of interesting dimension of this whole journey. So let's say a few words about prajna. First of all, it's a Sanskrit word, right? Sherap in Tibetan, for those of you who are more, more scholarly. And the translation to English, which the older I get, the more dissatisfied I'm, I'm getting with some of the early translations into English about these things, is discriminating awareness wisdom. That's the one I heard. But I, I currently like discernment the best. Can you discern something? Can you look at it and really bring your sharp blade of prajna and cut through any assumptions, any delusions about it? <clears throat> like prajna would look, it's, it's, it's panoramically useful for every activity. Just, it's like, what's going on? You know, like that Marvin Gaye song, if you ever heard it, what's going on? Great, great song. Just asking, what's going on? What's up? That's prajna. And you actually don't want somebody to just say the party line. You don't want to hear propaganda. You don't want to hear a theological perspective that has brought somebody sort of a dull, you know, comfort and security. What's really going on? What's happening? That's what musicians always ask each other, right? What's happening? Hey, man, what's happening? Well, since you asked, <laughs> nobody ever really answers it. <laughs> you know, it's more of a, like a, a casual greeting than a real call for sharpening the sword of prajna. What is happening? So prajna is that which is super curious, you could say. It's super curiosity. Supernova curiosity that has no allegiance to any uh, particular perspective. And when I did talk to Dr. Ja, I said, help me out here with the scientist thing. Do you ever prove something beyond a shadow of a doubt? She said, that's not our job. We only disprove. 
I went, really? She said, yeah, that's, we, we start with a theory, a theorem, and then we attempt to disprove it. That's very Prajna. So if we can't disprove it, it stands for the moment as the conventional uh, understanding of that, what that is. So there's no sense of, well, I've proved gravity. It's more we haven't disproved the theory of gravity, whatever that one might be. So now you could say that if there's too much prajna, it's very uncomfortable because like you can't even say, like somebody says, pass the butter, you know, at at the breakfast table. And the other person says, what exactly do you mean? By pass, what do you mean by the, and what do you mean by butter? That person is a little bit like, you know, maybe taking this all too too seriously. <laughs> and, you know, a Buddhist scholar could easily demonstrate there is no such thing as butter. It's a composite of other elements. It's a relative assignation. As soon as you put it, if you say butter is sort of a solid thing, as soon as you put it in a pan, it's a liquid thing. Where's the butter? Where's the butterness? And in the same way, this notion of self, which we've really gone to town with, we've worked lifetimes on this notion of a self, can easily be dismantled. A four-year-old could do it. Oh, I'm Michael Kammers. I'm a musician, a saxophone player. Well, which saxophone do you play? (laughs) And what's a saxophone? Why is it bent like that in the middle? I've always wondered that. What century did they do that to a saxophone? And were the unbent saxophones also saxophones or were they called something else? So we've developed a whole language of relative reality. That's fine. We're not trying to get rid of that. That would be insanity. But when you think of all the other things that we've accumulated in terms of conceptual and prejudice and uh, uncooked insights about what's going on, what's not going on, the fact is that when you see propaganda, which is another thing I'm contemplating, Gee, you mean all you have to do is tell somebody something and they'll believe it? What happened to their prajna in Russia? What happened? Did millions of people just go like, oh, I don't know, they said it on TV, it must be true? Are we saying that here? Do we do that in small and big ways? So prajna is, um, we, we talk about... Um, the three prajnas. We're going to get into this a little more technically. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, 
give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. How to cultivate prajna. And, and the symbol of the prajna is the sword. Isn't that interesting? In this very peaceful sort of tradition, you have one of the main energies of it is holding a sword up and it's it's brandishing it's not in the sheath it's been taken out of the sheath and you are showing a two-blade two-edged sword and the, the symbol the symbolic holder of this is called manjushri you see manju a lot in japan tibetan buddhism elsewhere india manjushri The sword cuts through. That's what it does. Its job is to cut through any kind of confusion, deception, self-deception. It's got two edges because it cuts through deception with the outer edge, and it cuts through self-deception with the inner edge. And without any doubt at all, if you want my humble opinion, the most dangerous aspect of any spiritual path is self-deception. That is the single most dangerous because you can develop a lot of prajna about everybody else and everything else. And you kind of become really smart and, you know, poking holes everywhere you go. And, but self-deception is kind of the final frontier for a Buddha, you know, a breakthrough like that. There can't be any self-deception. So it's a very sharp two-edged sword. And it's based on these three principles. The first one is called hearing. Are your ears unclogged? You know, can you hear? For example, I hate to keep picking on Russia. They just took the internet off in Russia right now. You don't get to hear an alternative point of view. And if you speak an alternative point of view, there's 15-year prison. If you say invasion, if you use the word invasion, you go to jail for 15 years. So that's putting pretty big blocks on people's, you can't even hear anything. So in hearing Prajna, you actually have the opportunity to listen to something, to hear it through. Read a book is a form of hearing. Sometimes when we transmit texts in Buddhism, there's what's called a, um, a lung or just a a read-through where you just listen to it. You don't really try to process it in any way at all. Opening your ears. The second prajna is called contemplating. Now, this is what we're going to do this morning. Contemplating means you think about it. You heard something, you thought about it. You don't take it for granted. So in contemplation, we tune into a particular topic that we've heard, which we'll get into a little bit later, and then we chew it. It's like you've, hearing would be like you took the raisin in your mouth, that's the hearing part, and then you chew it. 
And that's the contemplating part. You see if you can um, break it down and evaluate it properly. That's a very independent process. Um, there's no kind of pre-chewed food here. Just add water. Instant spirituality, just add water. You, know? you have to chew. That's called practice, right? When you practice this morning, you were chewing. You went, I don't know about this. This is boring. This is irritating. This is whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm not clear about the technique. You're chewing. Uh, and that's called contemplating. Mixing your mind. And the third one is called meditating. So we didn't say yesterday, but the word in Tibetan for met all kinds of meditation is gom, G-O-M. G-O-M. It means to become familiar with something. That's really what meditation means. You get familiar with your mind. You get familiar with the feeling of the breath. You get familiar with the wandering mind. You get familiar with emotionality and reactivity. You get familiar with being grouchy and sleepy. You get familiar with um, love. You get familiar with <clears throat> sadness. You get familiar with depression. You get familiar with anxiety. You don't just assume. You actually meditate means to really mix your understanding with the object of the meditation. That's what we're doing. And gom is a wraparound word for many different kinds of meditation. It has that essential thread of your tuning in, becoming familiar with something specific. Hearing, contemplating, and meditating. Sharpening the sword of prajna. Through the use of the thinking mind, the analytic mind, directed and focused with a kind of shamatha focus on a particular topic. And so when we wander from that topic in this practice, you do not come back to the breath. You come back to the train of thought that you're developing. So it has that shamatha or focus element into it. But the object of the meditation is not just the feeling of the breath. It's the analysis that you're working on. Now, you can apply this to anything. You can do it informally just by, you know, like I'm sure some of you are um, thinking of changing your job, I'll bet. I bet there's at least six people here right now this weekend who are thinking of changing their job. You're contemplating. Well, here's the thing. I'm making a kind of really solid salary with benefits right now. This is what contemplation on a job would look like. This other thing has a much bigger future, potentially. Uh, I like the people better. But on the other hand, you know, that's contemplating, right? Or you can tune the contemplation into some kind of more philosophical aspect, which is, what is the thought? Anyhow, by the way, we're labeling thinking. What is that? It's just something I've taken for granted my whole life. Of course. If thought, 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 thought. I think I'll think about this now. I'll think about that. I'll think about my cat's tail. I'll think about coffee. I'll think about my my head itch. I'll think about what is an itch anyhow. I'll think about my relationship life. 
we're thinking like crazy, crazy thinking. But we've never even thought, what is a thought? Probably not once. What is it? Where is it? We're actually, oh, it's in the brain. You know, that's what the Western people say. Thoughts are coming from the brain. Well, can you point to the thought? Like a sentence is coming out of your brain, you mean? There's a sentence in your brain? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to show there's electrochemical firings going on in the brain, but can you show me a paragraph of, of thoughts? Can you show me image of a house? Can you show me a memory? <laughs> I know some of you thinking they're getting awfully close to it, and I agree. So <clears throat> when we become familiar with something, we look at it from, you know, Joni Mitchell said it best, I think, when she said, Mike, I've looked at clouds from both sides now. And still somehow, it's clouds illusions, I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. You got a humble little bow to Joni, pretty deep. And applies to understanding the mind, your own mind, your precious consciousness. Which somehow we have the ability to be it and look at it at the same time, which is what's called sentient being. If we were just being it, there was no sentience there. We would just be beings. And if it was just sentience, we would just have the manual, but we wouldn't actually be able to do anything with it. So we're able to be and to look at it at the same time. And either this can just be fun. Frankly, contemplation can be super fun. Because it's like mental chess, you know, three-dimensional three mental chess. It happens to be your actual life, usually. So it's not just passing. So in, in contemplating, sometimes we can look at very seminal issues that will tripwire a recognition, insight, perspective shift about how we view reality in a good way, liberating way. So Buddha, you know, gave a bunch of different, uh, well, really a lot, actually, for somebody who was just free, freewheeling. As far as I can tell, there was no manual that the Buddha was following. I may be like out of the mix on that. There may be a Buddha manual in the sky somewhere and he had access to it and just go, oh yeah, I'm just reminding you all of these teachings. They just come up. They're but it seemed like he was reinventing the wheel, quite literally, <laughs> the wheel of Dharma. There's a good title for a book, right? Reinventing the wheel of Dharma. And he was just every night getting together and hanging out and saying this stuff that was so well-formed and so deep that it became what we call sutras. But really, it was just discourses. And one of them was about called the three marks of existence, three emblems, three norms, the three seals of existence. And it's a very simple premise. It says conditioned existence, not existence period, but the conditioned samsaric cause and effect the kind of reality that we spend most of our time in, that 
existence is marked by three very powerful elements. Now you're hearing, okay? First one is impermanence. Conditioned existence is marked by impermanence. Ooh, is that true? You know, now you heard it, you contemplate it, and you see, is it true? Is it true under certain causes and conditions, or is it not true? Right? Is our conditioned existence marked by impermanence? Now, if your own prajna tells you after the contemplation, you know what? I can't find fault in this. It seems to be true. Then you might have to align your perspective with acknowledging that reality. Everybody you know, everybody you love is going to age and pass away, including everybody in this uh, group. Now, some people get so offended by this, they just want to walk up and leave the Zoom session. Can't be true. But upon investigation, you look and you go, hmm, I think I might have to yield here to the fact that this does seem to be the case. And my clinging to a more permanent, idealistic version of reality may actually be putting me out of touch, out of balance, out of whack. So it might be worth thinking about whether we allocate real estate in our emotional and mental life to understand impermanence and the full implications of it? Or are we always going to be taken by surprise and say, oh, so-and-so got sick? Well, yeah. I'm getting sick. Well, yeah. And that's why Buddha was very cool in the palace until he saw an old person, a sick person, and a dying person and his bourgeois parents were trying to shield him from that reality, just give, giving him a kind of like a, a nice yacht and a you know, pleasure palace and just like, just don't worry about that stuff. And then he saw it for his own eyes. He went, what is going on here? This is this um, comfortable reality they have, uh, bourgeois reality that I've established is impermanent. And you know what he did? He left that. He left. So this is an interesting model that the Buddha was like, you know, uh, slipped out the back and became a yogi. And uh, some of you did that. I, I know who you are. Some of you slipped out the back and became a yogi and said, I'm, I can't follow this conventional situation anymore. And some of you slipped out the back and became a very conventional yogi. You know? We can create new conventions. It's easy. It's in, it's in our wheelhouse. But to keep that sharp edge of prajna active all the time and tune into the impermanent aspect of things without uh, any notion of wishing it was otherwise. Because wishing it was otherwise is the course of the uh, second or third, actually, depending on how you stack them, mark of existence, which is suffering. And really, I think if you look deeply at the cause of suffering, it has quite a bit to do with 
not understanding how things work, clinging to certain realities, right? Like, for example, if you're having a breakup, you go, I, I want to be with this person forever, like in the songs. I remember all those great songs, you know. I used to think it's such a great sounding word, forever, you know. I'm going to love you forever. You know, it's songwriters love that word. But no, you're not, by the way. You know, and I've watched all dear friends of mine who loved each other totally walk the other person to the grave. And you could still love them forever. That's true. There's something beautiful in that, actually. But they're not going to be there in that form forever. And they might take on another form that you might not recognize. And that could happen while both of you are still alive and healthy. Your partner takes on a form that you can't recognize. So impermanence means being awake to change. Awake to change. Not struggling with it. Accepting it. Tuning your mind into it. And the flip side, the twist is that it means not just endings, but it means beginnings are a reflection of impermanence. That's kind of profound. When a baby is born, that's the end of the fetus stage. There's no more fetus. The fetus died, right? So creation, you know, um, springtime is the death of winter. You know, winter is the death of fall. So we're going to look at impermanence. We're going to look at the kind of causality of our underlying stress and suffering. That's the second mark of existence. And the third one is the most interesting one, actually, if you could say that, which is anatman. I'm going to say it in Sanskrit. Uh, in Pali, it was anatta. And it's been translated as ego into the West. And I see a red flag there. Trungpa Rinpoche translated as ego. I think he was trying to find out where our minds are. And ego is sort of like our sense of exaggerated self. That's one of the meanings of ego. Um, like you say, somebody's egotistical. It means they have an exaggerated sense of their self. Um, but Atman really means a kind of primordial self. Or soul is probably the best um, definition for it. That there's something in each one of us that's immortal, basically. Uh, and many of my good friends would give a very subtle argument about why this is so. Or not argue, just say, uh, you know, it's a matter of faith. And some of you might, and that's okay. But we're not congregating today in any kind of faith-based um, congregation. So when you contemplate, you could say it then, look, I just take it on faith. I, you know, my priest told me this. My parents told me this. But when we contemplate, that's not going to get you an A on the test. <laughs> you have to tell the rest of us why you think that. From your own experience, from the depths of your own experience. So what is the self? That's the third one. <clears throat> Who are you? Who am I? 
What am I? So we're going to do those three contemplations as we're mixing our understanding of contemplative practice and doing a basic sort of initial passageway to it. But before we start in acknowledgement of impermanence, I would like to offer a 10-minute break so that you can carefully observe at the biological level that some things are impermanent. You might be thirsty. You might need to take care of something that wasn't even a problem 15 or 20 minutes ago. So let's take a break, and then we're going to actually do the contemplations. It'll just be a hors d'oeuvre course, as these are. But this is a very deep practice, and you could do these for a long time if you wanted to. And um, the, Again, the purpose of it is to develop clarity and insight and perspective. That's why we do it. So let's take a 10, team. So we'll come back in um, at 11.55 Eastern time. And then I'll lead these these exercises if you're game. There you have it, folks. Episode number 33 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. We sincerely hope that you enjoyed and appreciated it and that this Dharma talk by David on contemplative meditation is of benefit to you and helpful and can inform you in a way that deepens your practice, which deepens your relationship to being. We encourage everyone to do these contemplations on your own time and in your own practice. And if you do so, please leave a message or a comment on our social media or YouTube under this post and let us know how the uh, how your contemplation went and if your view shifted or you arrived at a, a juicy nugget. And if you like this Dharma Talk format of the podcast and you'd like to hear more of it, let us know as well. You can always shoot me an email at michaelk at dharmamoon.com if you have any suggestions for David's Views episodes. And yes, if you would like to hear more podcasts, please head over to beherenownetwork.com slash David. And you can go to beherenownetwork.com and hear lots of their amazing podcasts and their ever-growing library emanating from the world's wisdom traditions and our teachers. I'd like to send a special thank you to Corey, Sarah, JR, and everyone at the Be Here Now Network for their dedication and hard work and for their collaboration in the production of this podcast. And we would like to thank you all for listening. I think that does it for this outro. If you're still listening, thanks for hanging in. May you be safe, healthy, happy, and at ease. May you meet each moment with openness and combine wisdom and compassion into skillful means for the benefit of yourself and all sentient beings. All the best. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.